Hi, everyone. Welcome to Retail is Dead with myself, Leanne, Bex and Erin. This is a podcast where we talk all things retail as consumers and industry outsiders. We are fed up reading and hearing that retail is dead, but in our humble opinion, it's just getting exciting. We also wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone that listened to our first podcast on community. It was a huge success. And also another big thank you for those of you that rated and reviewed us. It's hugely, hugely appreciated. So thank you. So following on from our first episode on community, we didn't want to ignore what is going on right now with retail and the impact of COVID-19, as well as other structural changes are having on the industry and indeed the wider economy. So for that reason, today we want to spotlight resilience. Now, post-COVID, the world will never be the same again. We will have all have faced our own difficulties during lockdown that in turn will have made us more resilient. And it's easy to take advantage of a good situation like our world pre-COVID, but it's much harder to turn a bad one around. So in addition to our own thoughts on resilient brands and places, we have a very special guest, the co-founder of Steelhead Group and Maximal Concepts, Matt Reed. We chose Matt because of his wealth experience in the global F&B industry, as this sector, as we all know, has been hit particularly hard in recent times but also because being an entrepreneur and leader of many businesses, Matt has an in-depth knowledge of how to make a resilient business. And we hope that that would be very inspiring to you all. And because Bex and I love a good quote, we wanted to kick this session off with one. We were going to use the Darwin Adaptability Quote to help us summarise resilience, but we think that Mike Tyson does a much better job of summing up the sheer shock of the last four months. And he says that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And whilst we all think that the most overused word at the moment, other than furlough, is pivot, there are actually some great examples out there of retailers and restaurateurs innovating and adapting on the back of the most unprecedented events, certainly of all of our lifetimes. It's as if all of the trends that we've been talking about and forecasting for the next decade have come true in a matter of months. 2020 has become 2030. So what does this all mean? And what does this all mean for retail, restaurants, bars, gyms, cinemas, and our beloved hairdressers and waxing salons? Well, we are going to explore some great brands that champion resilience, along with some examples of places that we all think are portraying the essence of innovation and adapting at lightning speed, who we all think are set to come out of this period more resilient. So put down the negative press headlines and come and have a listen to us on the more positive side of things. So I'm wondering, I think it would be really good if we have a little think about what resilience means to us. Leanne, maybe if I can go to you first, what does it mean to you? Sure. Resilience to me, I kind of point back to my childhood actually, because I don't come from a very typical background. I have a very, I call it a colourful family. And I think that's always meant that whilst my childhood was great, it was very eventful. It meant that I've naturally had to be quite resilient. I wouldn't say that I am the most resilient person, but that is definitely one of the skills that I've tried to develop in myself over the years. And then I actually thought it'd be useful to give an example of what resilience has meant during this period for me. And actually, it's not necessarily myself, it's my husband. So My husband set up a business in July last year. And I think in hindsight, looking back, this was possibly the worst time to to set up a business and a business 
that is actually advising restaurateurs in property on their expansion plan. And I think when COVID hit in March, we were kind of for six weeks or so, we were in free fall. We were just not quite sure what was going to happen with, you know, with my job, with his, with the business. And then we kind of started to get into a new normal. And I started to see that he started to really work on the business and try to pivot the business and try and concentrate on other parts of the business that really needed some help at that time. And whilst, you know, protecting your cash flow is absolutely priority at this time, he tried to work on the PR and marketing side of Etch. And actually just seeing him and the, how much he has grown during this period is actually really, really inspiring. I love that. That's so relatable. Particularly when you say we were all in free fall, I think that is so true for all of us, you know, in, in one way or another, we were all feeling like that. And I totally relate to what you say. I personally always associate resilience with emotional intelligence. And it's something I've also struggled with in the past. And I've tried to kind of retrain my brain to get better at it. And I've surrounded myself with people, both of you included, who I think are more resilient. And I also think that brands and neighborhoods and places and organizations in a business context also struggle with resilience. And if you had to define it, it's that ability to kind of thrive rather than just survive in the middle of massive change. Is it the same for you, Erin? Yeah, I love that, Bex. I love being able to look on the positive side of things. I mean, we're all firm believers of everything happens for a reason. So I think in times like this, you really have to dig deep and think about that. But for me, it's definitely on the emotional side. I think it's the ability to show empathy and to listen and improve your perception of a situation at that time. And if you can then have the ability to look back on whatever happened and think, if that didn't happen, for whatever reason, I wouldn't be where I am today. And for me, that's true resilience, being able to look at it on a positive light and think that it's got you to where you are today. And I know that we're both completely obsessed with Alain de Botan from the School of Life, who we've both learned a lot from over the last couple of years. But he says that a good half of the art of living is resilience. And I think that that is so true right now, whether we realise it or not, we're all going to come out of this different and more resilient. Just moving on to our next section, we wanted to talk about resilient brands. And I actually haven't picked a brand as such. I've picked a concept and a concept that might be surprising to some of you. But when I was trying to think of resilient brands, actually pubs came to mind. And this is purely because they've been around for centuries. And actually, when you Google the oldest pub in the UK, there's quite a few that come up. But one that does come up is one that I've been to, which is the ye old trip to Jerusalem in Nottingham. And that dates back to 1799. It's beautiful. It's got lovely vaulted ceilings. But when you try and think, why has a pub lasted so long? I think purely it's because it's in the heart of the community and always has been. People really see the pub as a place to come and enjoy and meet friends. And that's the same wherever you are in the UK, you know, whether it's central London or in the sticks, it is definitely that meeting point. I would say, though, that the concept of the pub has been tweaked in recent years with gastropubs and the rise of those. 
And also I'm not saying that it's, you know, necessarily always a hugely successful sector. It isn't, there are failures as well. But when you look at why is a pub so resilient, I think it's a few things. Margins on drinks are actually higher than than food. Um, the cost of labor is much cheaper. The skill as well, the skills for people is completely different. So, you know, somebody that's pulling pints is completely different to a Michelin star chef that's in the kitchen and takes, you know, a couple of hours to do one particular dish. I'm sure we can all relate to that. And I actually thought, why don't I pick my favorite pub? And my favorite pub actually is a gastro pub. And that's the Law of the Land in Fitzrovia. It's just next to the BT Tower and it's owned by Guy Ritchie, who I love as well. When you walk into this pub, it just feels so authentic. It feels really old fashioned and the furniture is so cool. The staff are amazing and the vibe is just right. And the food, by the way, it could be a standalone restaurant, definitely because the food is the best, one of the best meals I've ever had in London. And if you haven't been for the roast and you're a vegetarian, the roasts are way better than any meat <laughs> roast. So yeah, that's the reason why I chose Law of the Land. That's awesome. I love that. I love that you've picked a business model that, as you say, has stood the test of time and it's incredibly simple, but when it's well executed, it does well. And I think that says a lot, you know, in the post-COVID world, there's going to be a lot of this, you know, take mm. things back to simplicity. And if it isn't broken, then just don't fix it. Yeah, definitely. I'm fascinated by that. I'm going to take it a full 180 and go back to retail. And I couldn't help myself. I picked two brands. And my first brand is Apple. And I can hear people rolling their eyes going, here she goes. It's really, really obvious because I picked Nike in the first episode, but just hear me out, right? So it's a brand that famously almost went bust. Then it was saved by Bill Gates at Microsoft. And in that huge comeback that they had, they not only just changed one industry, they managed to change about five of them. And arguably, in my opinion, retail is one of them. For me, Apple have really created a new standard for what stores are supposed to look like, how they're supposed to be executed, the kind of value and engagement they're supposed to have with a community. And they perfected that 20 years ago. And in the context of what this podcast is about, where people assume that retail is dead, that was a brilliant example of why it just isn't. And I love that. And the other brand that I thought I would mention is one of my favorite brands, uh, which is a luxury brand called Loewe. So not Lo, not Louis. <laughs> it's a Spanish brand, but I think the name originally is German or German-Jewish, one of the two. And I really love this brand because they're rewriting the rules on what a luxury brand is supposed to stand for. And the creative director, who's a guy I'm basically obsessed with, Jonathan Anderson. Me too. Um, <laughs> he's amazing. He's been kind of rewriting and transforming the brand quietly, which in itself is quite resilient, right? So at the beginning of lockdown, he was doing loads of IG lives with artists and craftsmen and kind of musicians that he liked, that he'd encountered in his so-called inspiration trips. And it was just such fresh content and so different to what everyone else was doing. But the real reason I've picked Loewe and I've picked Jonathan is because he created this idea of show in a box for his latest collection. And show in a box is turning the idea of a live stream completely around. First of all, because it's something much more sustainable. Second of all, because it's something super creative. So he imagine like a DIY kit of what a collection would look like where you have to like put things together yourself 
to look at textures and silhouettes. He did this and he sent it all to press. And then in the end, he did a sort of consumer event, which was virtual on Loewe.com and their IG. And I just think it's so clever to appeal to the creative side of us when we've all been, you know, baking banana bread or doing DIY in the house. Mm -hmm. And in doing all of this, not only was he probably smarter about his budget, but he created a far bigger buzz than he would have probably with a live stream. And I think that's exactly what a resilient brand is about. It actually takes me back. Some of the images of those boxes takes me back to when we were kids. And, you know, those dolls, the cardboard yes. cutting of dolls. So whether he was trying to do that as well and playing back to, like you just said, mm-hmm. the simplicity point, if it's not broken, don't try to fix it. Yeah. I mean, imagine getting one of those through your letterbox. Oh, I need to get on that mailing list. <laughs> he also did the, yesterday, I'm literally obsessed with it. He did the dancers going walking around Paris wearing the tie-dye in the new collection. I, like, what cool such a cool way to get your brand out there and show your new stock. It's like, it's amazing. I love him. Yes. Absolute goals to have one of their bags. In the meantime, I'll just continue to look at Vex's. Plural. (laughs) So I also wanted to talk about a sector, and that's the resilience of the pre-loved fashion sector, or as we all used to call it, I swear a minute ago, secondhand. (laughs) Clearly, this was a growing trend pre-COVID, and it's been around for a long time. Vintage and antique shops have been doing it forever, but the popularity of the market only seems to have accelerated during lockdown. And I can't be the only one now who's completely bored with my current wardrobe and been doing mega clear outs. I've also become more mindful of waste and going forward, I really don't want to keep buying new. I just feel that it feels like such a fruitless and it's wasteful and it's not great for the environment. And also we can't wear it all anyway. And I feel like that's far more at the forefront of everyone's mind. But I wanted to mention a brand called Depop. And if you aren't already aware of Depop, they're a mix between social media platform and a marketplace. So think of them as a super cool eBay meets an Instagram. And they've got over 15 million registered users. 90% of those are under 25. And Gen Z have been the absolute driving force of the growth of the circular economy and of driving more sustainable items. And I think that post-COVID, this trend is only going to continue to grow, as will transparency, which is now demanded more than ever. I mean, we only have to look at what's happened with the Black Lives Matter movement and the direct impact this has had on senior roles within major retailers and other businesses, or the complete mess that was the sweatshops that were uncovered in Leicester um, from boohoo.com. So I think... That during lockdown, Gen Z have been getting far more creative. And like you say, Bex, people have been making banana bread, but people have also been making their own clothes or upcycling their old ones to sell. Mm. And I think if we all just take a second to appreciate the tie-dye phenomenon that was. <laughs> I mean, it's just mad. The hashtag tie-dye was viewed more than 585 million times on TikTok so far. And... I just think it's incredible that people are now in this mindset where they want to upcycle their existing wardrobe and so much so that Depop had a growth of new signups in April of 165%. 
and that they had an increase in April this year of 300% year-on-year in the number of items sold. And I think post-lockdown, coming out of this, we're all becoming far more au fait with online shopping. We all know we have too much stuff, and these platforms mean that we can also make a bit of extra income selling the products too. And more interestingly, we've seen some of these brands invest in physical pop-up shops, namely within Selfridges, which I think is great because it allows customers to touch and feel the products. And when Depop did theirs, you could go in and have a look at some of the more popular items. Some of their accounts have hundreds of thousands worth of followers and they have their own products in Selfridges. But they've more recently done a collaboration with a more luxury competitor, Vestiaire Collective, who have still got a space within Selfridges, which I think is really fascinating. And for me, I think the growth of this market is here to stay. When you look at things like social media and technology, it's helping us all to become far more global and international and we can communicate much quicker. And I think it just proves that even a pandemic can't even slow down the growth of this market. Mm. I mean, you all know I'm probably not a customer for this kind of market, but I totally appreciate the sustainable point of view. And I think that's hugely important, but I don't think I'm going to be one that's running out and unfortunately getting secondhand things. Although maybe luxury items I do see like renting a dress or a handbag or shoes or whatever it may be. I get that, but no, sorry. But yeah, I'm the wrong generation. (laughs) I think I agree. And we've both got sisters that are the same age, Leanne, who are I mean, they, it's, their, it's how they shop, it's, how, mm. it's their lifestyle, they live and breathe it. And that's different to, to how we shop and how we have shopped. But I think even those brands having a place in Selfridges says something to me. Yeah. If you delve a bit deeper into how the products are washed after, I mean, it doesn't smell like a stuffy charity shop. It's curated beautifully and it makes you feel like you want to be part of that movement. It's so clever. Just linking to that and moving on to typical places that represent resilience. I actually found it hard to pick a place. And whenever I did, I kept coming back to London and I didn't want to include London in this for lots of reasons. And when I was looking at it, actually, I found that Stockholm is ranked six in the world's most resilient cities. And that's actually above London and Paris. And I love Stockholm. I really love Stockholm. And I thought, that's really interesting. And then delving a little deeper, I wanted to understand how is a city measured in resilience? I thought it was really interesting. So this resilient measure looks at the climate and the environment, because of course, that's a really important factor. Um, local resource, infrastructure and community, and then also adaptability, governance, technical capacity, planning and funding systems. And these are all things that Stockholm ranks really highly in. It's a relatively small city, it's 2.4 million, so it feels really small in comparison to London, much like some of our northern cities. And also, I thought it would be useful to talk about some brands that have come from Stockholm. And there are a few that, of course, we all know of, H&M being one, and all the H&M brands, Weekday, Arket, Cos, Under the Stories, etc. IKEA, which if you don't have 
one item in your house that's from Ikea, then I don't know where you've been living for the past. <laughs> that's so true. Then you've never 20... been broke and you've exactly. never been a student. <laughs> Not even broke. I just, I love all the like candles and weird stuff that's like a pound there. Then I should vegan meatballs as well. So that's another reason to go. Oh yeah. I love the meatballs. Do love the meatballs, even though I don't eat meat. <laughs> but also three really, really cool brands I love. I mean, you guys know how much I love acne. It's like one of my favorite brands ever. 80s, whilst it's an, I'm not necessarily an 80s customer, I really like the DNA. I really like the brand. I really like what it stands for. And then Traytorn as well. And then I thought I'd quickly talk about a UK city that I feel is resilient. And it's a little bit of a shock factor to those of you that <laughs> know me and know that I'm actually from Yorkshire for me to say a city that's in Lancashire. Because there was a small little war a long time ago that people still bring up. Um, but actually, I think Manchester is probably one of the most resilient cities in the UK. It actually is ranked in the top 100 resilient cities. It's actually larger than Stockholm itself. It's 3 million people. And Manchester has this adaptability. It can be lots of things to lots of people. It has a resilience member in the local council. It's got this way of transforming itself. It was bombed in the Second World War. It was then a target during the IRA bombings. And it's really culturally diverse. There are lots of businesses that relocate from London to Manchester. The BBC actually most recently being one. And a lot of restaurant brands, actually, when they're venturing outside of London, typically they'll choose places like Oxford, Cambridge, Birmingham. But in most recent years, people are actually choosing Manchester to be their northern hub. So the likes of Deschum, Hawksmoor, D&D, the Ivy, Honest Burger. I mean, the list is endless, really. You, you go to Manchester these days and it feels so cosmopolitan. And I'm sorry to my family for me saying that I love Manchester over Leeds, but I actually <laughs> do. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's also very relatable, actually. You've made me really think about where my pick would sit in that kind of resilience ranking. But I think, you know, one of the things that you've said about both cities is they're both culturally diverse. And there's a lot to say about that and the sort of positive correlation with resilience. So I actually picked another European city. I picked Berlin because it's one of my favorite cities. And I still remember that feeling when I first went. It's just that it's a city that's got such a positive attitude to change. And it's got such great energy. And, you know, as we know, it's been famously and literally been torn apart and rebuilt several times. And I wanted to talk about specifically Mitte. So Mitte is in East Berlin. So it fell on the kind of wrong side of the fence, so to speak, or the wall. The right um, side. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and it is quite similar to Williamsburg in New York and Shoreditch here in London. It's actually so much more than that because it's been the hub of creativity and culture, the arts. It's got some quite interesting residents and brands have been kind of creating new concepts that are specific for Mitte for a really long time. And yes, of course, you can argue that some of the cool kids have now moved down south to Kreuzberg. But I think that's why Berlin for me is resilient. It's because even if people move in and out of neighborhoods, somehow 
residents and local government have managed to keep the identity of, in this case, Mitte intact. And it's something that I see a lot of other cities struggling with. And I would probably put London in that category of, you know, a, a city that has some resilient parts to it, and then some parts that really struggle with change. And the last time I visited Berlin, actually, I stayed in one of my favorite hotels, which is the 25-hour hotel. And it was in this like super random place. It's basically like next to the zoo, next to a resi area, but also <laughs> kind of quite central. And it's called the Bikini Mall. So it's basically a shopping center, but it isn't because it's a collection of pop-ups, local brands, and other kind of small independent brands that can be international, but they're quite small. So the point of that shopping center, if you like, is that you'll walk in and you won't ever see anything that is too familiar. And the reason why I love this place is because it's got a really cool concept store in it called Gestalten. So Gestalten is actually a publishing house. And in the UK, they work with Monocle. So you may have come across them because all the Monocle books are produced by them. And they did this cool concept store, which sits at the top of this mixed use scheme. And it's basically like a lifestyle homewares gadget store. And they also sell books. And that is very much Berlin in a nutshell for me. Like they do a shopping center that Mm. isn't really a shopping center and they anchor it with a bookstore. Like take that Amazon. I just love that. It's very Berlin, right? It's very like counterculture. I love Berlin. I love that you can go out on a night out with a pair of jeans, a t-shirt and some trainers on and everyone looks hot. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) I can't wait to go back. I know. I wanted to talk about Wynwood in Miami. And for those who haven't been yet, it's in between downtown Miami and the Design District. So it's across the bridge from South Beach. And it's best known for its character buildings covered in walls of the most amazing graffiti and street art that you will ever have seen. And it's in amongst the coolest mix of culture next to a brewery, concept stores, pop-up shops, unbelievable restaurants and a really buzzy nightlife. And when I first visited in early March, I was so lucky to get there just before the whole world fell apart. The first thing that I was blown away by was the sheer cool factor of the place. But when I came back and I delved a bit more into the history, it's a pretty resilient place. It was the original home of the garment industry more than 100 years ago. And it's where the Cubans settled in the 60s, who were the driving force of that industry. And its current cool status with the Wynwood Walls, which was the walls of graffiti I mentioned, was actually born out of the last major recession in 2009. And it's since survived two major storms and a Zika outbreak. And now it's tipped to be the new Silicon Valley in the States. And they've recently had some cool office occupiers come in, like Spotify and Live Nation. And apparently there are some cool hotel operators looking to open up hotels there. And walking around when we were there in March, there was a real buzz of activity. There was lots of construction work taking place. There was cranes everywhere. For anyone that knows Shane, he's obsessed with the cranes, particularly the American cranes. But it it made you feel like things were happening and there was a really positive sentiment. And for me, it just feels like it's one of these places that can keep reinventing itself to stay relevant. And it has a real community at its heart. So I think... One of the main things that we've all seen coming out of lockdown, particularly in London, is that the places with communities and residents on their doorsteps have been able to recover quite quickly 
compared to central London, where they're very reliant on tourists and office workers to help boost that economy. So I'm hoping that because they have those residents, that the shops have also managed to keep alive coming out of lockdown. And I do think that trend of shopping local, going to your local high street to do your shopping rather than going to the city centre, because I mean, certainly in London, there's the congestion charge, there's traffic for one. It's not an easily accessible place unless you want to get on public transport, which I appreciate lots of people still don't want to do, that communities will continue to be the beaten heart of the cities and the pockets of cities where they have communities feel like they can get on with life and we can feel like we're recovering slightly quicker. So yeah, that for me just felt like one of the coolest places, but equally it's somewhere where people live, where people work and there's the most amazing street art in the world. Mm, That's so powerful. I think COVID-19 is possibly the best thing that's happened to the so-called death of the high street. More like the revival of the high street, I think now. So now we're going to talk to our second guest on our series, which is Matt Reed. He's the co-founder of Steelhead and Maximal Group, which we spoke about earlier in the podcast. I'll hand over to Matt to do his introduction because he'll do it much better than I will. So take it away. Thanks, Leanne, and thanks for having me. So a little bit about me. I was born and raised in the UK. I moved to China in 2004. So I've been, and I'm speaking to you right now from Hong Kong. Myself and my long-term business partner are celebrating 20 years in business together, Malcolm and myself. We met at university in Bristol, and we now have a collection of companies which have all been driven just from passion, and they sit in three key areas. First is hospitality and restaurants, and we're best known for Mot32, which we now have in both Canada, America, most of the Asian gateway cities, and hopefully soon in London. We do a lot of content production. We have our own production company and we make environmental documentaries and we produce stream content in mountains under a company called Far North. And the last thing is biotech and wellness. And we have a company called Disruption Labs, which is based out of Austin, Texas, and is really pioneering a new form of delivery for wellness products. And so that's really focused on wellness. They may seem like, how can those make any sense to do all those together? But actually, they all interlink. Uh, like eating is well-being, living life well is well-being, and capturing that. And what you put in your body is everything. And so that's led us into the wellness space. So that's me in a nutshell. That's amazing. Thank you. Super impressive. So I thought we'd probably start off with a question about resilience. And it's a very general question, but what does resilience mean to you? And I guess it'd be great to understand in the context of COVID-19 as well, what it has meant to you and your businesses during this time. Yeah. So resilience is the ability to recover quickly from difficulties. I think that's the technical dictionary definition. I also like the fact that it also relates to elasticity. So like springing back to shape. So the two definitions of resilience. And so when one talks about recovering from difficulties, I think that there's a lot of action items that come from that. I think most entrepreneurs have to have the never-ending amount of energy not to give up because it's not easy. Ideas are cheap, but the execution of ideas 
to an end goal is actually really, really hard. And that comes from never ending problems being thrown your way. And those problems can be, you'd never expect it, but it could be a global pandemic. It could be micro issues. It could be tornadoes. It could be any number of things. It can be staffing issues. It can be, every day is a collection of problems. And your ability to lead your team, to manage your own stress, to make decisions, to change, to evolve, is fundamental to whether you make it or not. So I think that resilience means to me just never giving up. It's like, it's how much do you want it? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's always been my credence. I think everything that I ever created came because I worked incredibly hard mm. and surrounded myself by amazing people and just tried my very, 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 very best. And I failed many, many times, but it's because I picked myself up and tried again that I think <laughs> I got to where I got to so far. It's quite interesting you say those things because you pick out quite a few things we all talk about, whether it's what resilience means to ourselves, but also when we look at businesses and we think that they're resilient, we've picked out some of those things that you said. So it means that either we're doing something right or you definitely are. No doubt. That's good. And then also when you were building the brands, Maximal and your other brands as well, were you conscious of resilience or is it something that you react to, like you say, or are you always thinking in the back of your mind, right, okay, so we will, let's talk about property, we will pay this level of rent because it means the business can survive some difficult periods or when you're looking at your suppliers, we can only pay X because we need to factor in some flux in there. Do you think about resilience on a day-to-day basis or is it more of a um, holistic thing that's in the back of your mind? I think that if you're feeling like you're having to be facing the challenges of resilience on a daily basis, you might need to ask yourself some questions as to what's going on, right? You know what I mean? As in, you shouldn't be needing to speak to your landlord on a monthly basis for some rental issue. That means you've just either built the wrong business plan or Mm. this is not working. So, I mean, I do think there's a certain degree of planning well and being on top of what you're doing and and getting better at what you're doing. But I also think that the key word in this was recovery, right? So I think when it comes to restaurants, we're going through the most insane experience in the life of F&B globally. And I just read today, I mean, so we have Mot 32 in the Palazzo and also in Marina Bay Sands. And the owner just came out and said, he's not going to do any furloughing until the end of October, even though he's on 97% of his revenues. Can you imagine a business that's 97% down in sales and is still continuing to pay his employees, which is just because he believes that's the right thing to do. And, you know, I think that that's an amazing thing that he's doing. Mm. But, you know, I think that when it comes to restaurants, we've had to use creativity. We've had to share a burden amongst all of us. You know, I've just mm. spent the day on phone calls with my teams discussing how to survive. That's not something you would expect to be doing on a regular basis. But, mm-hmm. but I believe that the resilience doesn't just come from like the top. This resilience has come from a team that believes in each other, that trusts each other, that feels like they're a member of a family. And that comes from building blocks that we've built prior to a crisis. So maybe we can kind of take resilience one step back and say, how do you really become resilient? Well, you become it because you've you've got a strong foundation. You yeah. have a team that there's more to it than just being able to solve a problem, you know? That's so true. And being personally resilient is super important as well in all of that, which is very evident. 
So just taking it a bit of a diversion to retail and brands, because that's what mm. we really like, and it's a fun bit. Yes. Fun. yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you'll admit to something like this, but what is your most embarrassing or extravagant purchase that you've ever bought? And I don't think we can include cars and houses into that because it's really standard. <laughs> oh, that's a cop well, out. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm quite unusual in the fact that I don't own a car. Oh, interesting. I, so I wouldn't even have that to pull back on. But as a someone who's really committed his life to food, probably my most extravagant purchase on a probably too regular basis is I do eat in what some people might perceive some quite expensive restaurants. And in particular, I'm a big fan of Japanese omakase sushi, oh, which wow. can be quite expensive. But for me, I believe that those moments and those experiences and those flavors and that craft. And I know, well, like, for example, if you go to Sushi Shikon here in Hong Kong, you know, they're speaking to the fishermen and it's being air freighted in, which has probably not got the greatest carbon footprint, but it is <laughs> an, an incredible experience that I think is like a craftsman's experience that is worth it. But it, to others, it, one might say it's quite extravagant. Yeah, I get that though. I think sometimes I get experiences over products because. You can never forget that, whereas you can dispose of a product, I guess. So I, I totally get that. And Rebecca was absolutely like fangirling over your Japanese love of food. Oh, I love I love everything about Japan. About a week ago, I was supposed to be on my way there for the Olympics and to have lots of extravagant food like you just described. So I relate to that a great deal. We're actually working on a Japanese restaurant at the moment. So that's quite an exciting time to be able to be going through the tasting process with that which will be starting soon oh it's amazing oh my awesome. so jealous yes. yeah <laughs> okay and then what's the most embarrassing brand that you like or enjoy <laughs> i kind of struggle with this question because i'm really not embarrassed about any, any brands <laughs> that I, I think i'm just like shamelessly enjoy everything that i partake in from a brand perspective so i'm afraid i can't really say that i'm embarrassed about a brand you know you enjoy so, McDonald's. Yeah, but I'm not embarrassed about that. I mean, it's, not one, it's, it's singly one of the most successful restaurants in the world. Yeah, um, true. Built on a genius business model of owning the real estate, controlling the franchisee. I don't know if you've seen the founder when they actually sat on a tennis court and drew the engine that made that kitchen. For me, it's inspirational. I mean, so like, you know, you could say as a restaurateur, you're really eating chicken nuggets, but, yeah. but, but, I, but I, I don't think that's embarrassing. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I do like the chicken nuggets from McDonald's, I will admit to that. And then this is maybe a bit of a personal question. <laughs> and people squirm at this question, but you don't have to answer it. But maybe that speaks volumes. Who did you last DM on Instagram? And can you say what it was? So I'm actually launching my <laughs> CBD brand, Reset Bioscience, at the moment here in Hong Kong. It's quite an exciting time. And I have to admit that I don't do a lot of DMing on Instagram, but I have been. And I've been messaging, <laughs> I've been messaging yoga studios and fitness influencers and all sorts of different people and getting really remarkable yeah. responses. And I will share the best one I had today from a restaurateur that I'd never heard of called something like Mother of Dill. And it's a vegan. And they want to do CBD infused donuts vegan donuts with reset so that was my last dm 
That was quite good. Erin actually always DMs brands. So she's up there with doing that. Love it. <laughs> you Such a stalker. <laughs> yes. yes. And then I guess another fun question. What are your top three most used emojis? I mean, hands down, the one that gets used the most at the moment is either, you know, the Thai style thank you, like with the, <laughs> like the hands together, because I literally feel like I'm thanking everybody every day for something <laughs> <laughs> nonstop, because I'm just communicating like crazy, because we have to over communicate in times like this. Mm. And the opposite of that is probably my head exploding. So, like somewhere between either my head exploding <laughs> and saying thank you. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. And then lastly, before we ask you about your tips on where to eat, when you think of resilience, is there a person or a brand or a place that inspires you? Yeah, this one for me is probably a very personal answer. So my COVID experience has been not only like everybody else, everyone's had an awful experience in the last six months. Mine had an added complication, which is just at the very beginning of it, my dad got diagnosed with cancer. And so, oh, sorry. and I actually moved my dad to Hong Kong to have his treatment and had put him in my apartment here because at the time I felt London was really, it was literally just kicking off at the beginning of the year. And I knew Hong Kong was sort of on a different wave. So I've actually had my dad living with me here in Hong Kong for the last few months. And I've watched him go through the whole thing. And two days ago, he did his last chemo. And he has laughed his way through the whole thing. And that to me is an amazing resilience. And he's just, you know, in a foreign country, living in a little apartment in a place which he's not used to being, has just done it all with a smile. So I think he's, that's my inspiration. That's amazing. And I'm so sorry to hear that. But equally, it's quite a personal and special time and, and nice to have him close to you, I guess, considering he's normally halfway across the world. Well, actually, he's normally on the exact opposite side of the world. He lives in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. So it, it has actually been a really amazing gift that I've seen my mom and dad like every few days for the last four months, which has been actually one of the silver linings of this horrible mm. experience. I bet, yeah, I bet you've probably needed them as well. I have, yeah. So that has been great. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. And then lastly, because you are such a foodie and I know our listeners will want to know where you like eating and drinking. If you were to describe your perfect day, so breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and travel is not an issue, you can go anywhere in the world. What would you do? Where would you go? (laughs) It's quite difficult. Mm. Oh, that's a difficult one. And I definitely haven't prepared properly for any of that sort of question. Um, (laughs) Okay, and I'm going to make this slightly more relevant, I think, to London. For me, my favorite breakfast in London every time I come, so I go to the Woolsey and I have duck eggs and haggis. For me, that is a rite of passage. But I would also say that as someone who doesn't eat breakfast on a regular basis, any sort of epic breakfast buffet is definitely a win. Lunch would have to be an omakase. I mentioned it earlier, but definitely mm-hmm. like just an incredible sushi experience and there are many around the world i obviously can reference ones here in hong kong sushi zo are great friends of mine and i have to say i think that they do an amazing job so i would probably go and see fumio san if i had the choice and dinner that's a real struggle you know you can um, say a few places don't worry it's hard i know it's hard it's hard i mean it depends on the different foods and I don't know. I think that's a very, very impossible question to answer because there's so many meals and I couldn't pick one. 
what I would say is just experience because it's hard to really embody it. But when you first open a restaurant, so like I recently opened Mot 32 in Singapore and we went there for the very, very first time and we opened the doors for the first time and we sat, ate the first meal in a restaurant that has been six months of incredible hard work. A team has come together and you watch people come in and react to something. And it's hard to explain it, but there's this huge inbuilt nervousness that it's going to flop, mm. it's going to be a failure, it's not going to work. And then you see, and I, and I always describe it, it's like it's, the curtains come back, the show starts, and does the crowd smile? Like, you know, you don't, and the feeling of sitting, eating what I am incredibly proud of, which I still to this day think is arguably the best Chinese food you can eat, and translated to wherever we are. So with the Singaporean element that we put in and being surrounded by people that are kind of swallowing up that experience, there is no other feeling like that. Um, mm. So if you want to talk about a dinner that is not just a dinner, but comes with so much effort and so much emotion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're few and far between, but those definitely are quite special. And I'm not just saying this, but the times I've been to your restaurants, you do actually feel that. It's weird you say that, actually, because you really feel there's so much detail and there's so much atmosphere, whether it's Brick House or it, I went to Mot 32 as well and experienced that. It was incredible. And as you say, that meal actually is very memorable for lots of reasons. So well, I agree with you. Kind of you to say, I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not just saying it, I promise you. So that really brings to an end our interview. And I think, oh, you want to ask a question? Yes, you? I have a bonus <laughs> question. Can you pick a favorite restaurant of your group? Or is that like asking you who's your favorite child? <laughs> no, I can. I mean, all of them have been great fun to create, but Mot32 has something incredibly special about it. And I mean, and just sheer fact that it's expanding the way that it is. I actually do a lot of talks on it around accidental disruption, but it's pretty unusual to take a type of cuisine of a major nation and adapt the way that it's cooked. And that's kind of what we did. And it was due to the systemic deep conservatism in the top Chinese chefs and the fact that we came in with this different energy. And we brought a lot of modern systems into the cooking. We changed a lot of processes and we globalized a lot of ingredients that really hadn't happened before. And I think that that's something that we'll never do again. I mean, there's no way that we will do that for another nation's food in another way. It's th mm. That's the pinnacle of every effort we could have made. And it was probably our 16th or something restaurant. So, you know, we, we did a lot to get to that point. And I think you can kind of know when you've done it. You know, I think if you ask the film director, they know the one that got the Oscar was a really, really good one. And the others <laughs> were great films, you know, but there was a reason why that one in particular really just had all the pieces, all of the elements you'd ever learned and just came together with the right momentum and the right everything, right timing. And so I'm happy to say that it's Mot32. I think, I think we, we know that. I love That's that. Great. <laughs> have you been back yes many times oh, good, good. yes i think we had our first in fact we did my husband moved there before me and we had our first ever a sort of date night if you like at mot 32 <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. so thank you so much matt honestly i think it's been really great having you on because you are such an interesting person and a little bit of a genius when it comes to restaurants and hospitality and we felt it was really important for us to portray the hospitality side in this episode because it's been particularly hard hit right now 
So it's really great to get your insight on that and all the other businesses that you're doing and all the other things that you do. I don't know how you have time to do anything in the day. You put me to shame. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for all your kind words. And please yeah, do support your local restaurateurs and do whatever you can because they're all struggling right now. So any little kindness will be very well received by anyone in my sector because times are tough. So thanks mm. again for having me. I really appreciate it. That's all right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So for this episode's drop, we wanted to mention our friends at Two Flux, who have the most amazing wedding stationery business. But on the back of COVID, they pivoted to make the best gift boxes and greeting cards out there. Check them out and we've linked them, their Insta and their websites in the show notes after this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed our second episode and feel free to contact us on our email, which is info at retailisdead.com or check out our Instagram where we will happily take any comments or any challenges or anything that we've mentioned on this episode. And most importantly, please, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And as a short disclaimer, all views and opinions as our own and in no way represent our respective employers. Until the next time, take care and we'll see you all soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.